0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
3: Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime.
2: LGBT. Thriller. You have... Hold
1: up.
2: Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. I've
4: now entered the house of mystery with your host. Eric Shapiro,
0: David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on KCB, 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and
1: 1050 AM Palm
0: Springs.
3: You are back in the house of mystery and of course i'm al warren mr john copenhaver hey al how are you we've got the author of anywhere you run a novel and that's by wanda m morris well thank you for being here wanda
4: thank you for having me al and john
3: well so wanda where did it all start for you (laughs) oh
4: wow (laughs) <laughs> shall I go back as far as those Sears Charm School lessons or what? Um, <laughs> I, mean, I want
3: to know about that. <laughs> yeah. Let's see, now we're getting to some real good information. No, I mean, um, I always um, try to picture how a writer begins their writing life, like where it comes from for them. And, uh, you know, is it some sort of an event or some sort of thing that makes you start writing and you took off from there something you did ever since you could remember, or is this a recent kind of flash that happened?
4: Uh well for me, gosh, I have always wanted to write. Um, but I tamped down those desires. I I made up all sorts of excuses. I you know, I was raising three kids. I, you know, had quote unquote, a real job. I was working too many hours to write. I never had time, whatever. And, um, and then way back in, in the way back machine in 2008, I finally put pen to paper. I, um, someone asked me recently, like, what was it that actually made you write the first scene? And I started All Her Little Secrets in 2008 because I had gone to a meeting and that meeting didn't go well. I I felt uh, disrespected and devalued in the meeting. I work in corporate America. And um, that is what made me put pen to paper. And I wound up writing a novel about a black female lawyer who worked in a corporate environment where she felt devalued. Um, and so that was kind of the genesis of it all.
3: Well, and it's interesting how you say that uh, you'd always wanted to, but you always kind of had the excuse not to write. You know, you're putting things uh, in front of writing Um all the way around and 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 then you start this book all her all her little secrets um but that's still pretty courageous like that takes that that always takes a lot of nerve to actually you 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 know in your mind for years you kind of want to but you don't and you just and, and you're not going to jump on stage and all of a sudden you do um even though that meeting you talk about didn't go good, what actually gave you the courage to actually write out in a book and want it published so people could see it?
4: Well, for me, writing was cathartic, I think, at that point, because I had so much frustration about um, what I was doing at the time in in terms of, you know, working in this, this corporate environment I was so frustrated that writing out, you know, these thoughts and these ideas was really a way to alleviate that frustration. Now, of course, the book evolved, thankfully so, um, from the very first draft. But, um, nonetheless, it was kind of what got me through that, that period of time where I was, um, feeling frustrated. Um, so, yeah, that's that. If you're looking for what was the motivation, that was the motivation. It was a way to release that frustration.
3: So in a way, it was a new, it, it, I guess it was in essence, a new way to um, get your feelings out rather than being locked into your, into your mind or into your body. Um and it give you another outlet rather than just going around killing people that you didn't like. <laughs> uh,
4: yeah, I don't think I harbored many thoughts about killing people. But I will say that in my books, I do do that thing that a lot of writers do where they say, what if? And in my first book, I, I did ask a lot of times that question like what if you worked for someone and this thing happened or what if you walked into the office one day and that thing happened so yeah I mean you know I actually you can ask my friend John I'm actually a really nice person I, I write about very dark things um but I think that's a lot of mystery and, and crime fiction authors that, you know, we actually are, you know, seeking to write those things that, you know, are far and above what we would normally do. We're actually quite nice people, I think, crime fiction writers are.
2: Yeah, we get all our, our uh, um, frustrations out in our fiction. Yep. I-, I do have a Question though, like, how did you find? So, you know, you, you've had the situation that you were clearly and, and and you know justifiably upset about, but you you kind of turned it into a thriller. Like, did you did did it just feel like a natural place to go? The genre, or I mean, of course, you could have written it as literary fiction or a variety of other things. I'm just curious how you ended up with the thriller.
4: Well, I think that that was primarily because. I've always gravitated to mystery and thriller writing. Um, I've always loved this genre. And so I think once, you know, I kind of had these thoughts about what the story might be about. I kind of leaned into the genre that I love. Now I write all, I mean, I read all different types of, of books, but. I really love um mysteries and thrillers because I like that whole idea of you know following along and trying to solve a puzzle along with the protagonist, so I think I just kind of leaned into what I you know was familiar with and
3: what I love so when you released that first book, it looked like um you, you were pretty successful with it, you know editors pick and you 've got lots of sales, people are happy, all this hubbub and stuff and now you can, uh, date anyone you want and you've got everybody chasing you and stuff. Well, we're...
4: that, that, that would be so, but I think my husband would have a problem with that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what, you know, come on. He's not here. Come on. Um, no, but what, what was your reaction to that? Um, in the sense of, do, do, do you, do you, were you satisfied with what you got out of that book?
4: oh my gosh, you know, that's that's like asking me, you know, you woke up this morning and you were healthy and breathing. Were you satisfied with that? It's like, oh my gosh, it was above and beyond. I mean, when I sat down to write all her little secrets, you know how it kind of came out of this frustration. And then once I started writing these characters that I came to love, I was just, so focused on getting the story between the covers of a book that I had not even thought far enough ahead, like, oh, gosh, could this, you know, actually make a list or, you know, could it sell well? I was just, you know, so happy that, you know, I had a story that I loved. And then, you know, the book got so, so much rejection from agents that my next milestone was, could I just get an agent? Um, Because, you know, I'd written the book, put the book away for seven years, and then went back to it, finished writing it, and then spent another four years trying to get an agent. So once I hit that milestone, then it was the, oh, gosh, could I actually get a book contract? So, you know, I was far and above blown away by, um, you know, how well that book was received. Um, And I'm grateful. I I am grateful for every minute because I know that that doesn't always happen. Um, There are lots and lots and lots of really, really good writers who um, don't see um, the kind of commercial success that, you know, books can, can get. And that doesn't mean that that book is lesser than, It just means for whatever reason, it didn't happen. So I am grateful for every success and every milestone that I get.
3: Do you think it changed you in the way you write after you went through all that and after you go through your first book and put it together at the end of it? um, Now, when you're on to your second book, um, are you a different writer?
4: I think I am. Only because when I was writing uh, my first book, that was the very first book I'd ever written, like ever. I don't have any, you know, drawer books that won't see the light of day. All Our Little Secrets was the very first book I ever attempted to write. And so I think that I was learning how to write a book when I was writing that book. And, you know, all that rejection I got, a lot of it was warranted because the book wasn't ready at some points. And I I got the gift from some agents who were kind enough to tell me, here's what doesn't work in this book. Here's, you know, if you were to revise this, here's what I think you need to do. And I took that and poured it back into the book. So all of that time, I was learning how to write a book. I had to learn about characterization and pacing and dialogue. Um, So by the time I went to my second book, I think I had a bit of a leg up on those things. But I still had that same kind of awkward fear that I think a lot of writers have when they go into any new project, you know, Is this idea big enough to sustain, you know, three or 400 pages? Will people want to read this? Is this interesting enough that people will want to plunk down $20 uh, and and spend eight or 12 hours reading it? So um, yes and no, I I think I did have a bit of a leg up, but, you know, it was still kind of scary to, you know, start that new project and, and hope for the best.
3: Yeah, follow-up's always tough. So, Anywhere You Run, um, let's talk about the basic premise of that. What's the storyline?
4: So, the story is about two sisters, uh, Violet and Marigold, who um, have some dark secrets, um, their own individual dark secrets, and they take off running uh, to different parts of the country after uh, Violet kills a man who, who attacks her. Uh, what the two sisters don't realize is that there is a man who has some dark secrets of his own, who is hot on their trail because he has a very unique motive for finding the women. And the book is historically set, um, which is very different from my first book. Um, Anywhere You Run is set in 1964. And um, it takes place during the summer of um, The Freedom Rider Murders, where um, Cheney, Goodman and Schwerner were murdered in Mississippi for trying to help black
3: Mississippians get the right to vote. Putting it in that kind of a setting, is there a particular reason you chose that setting of 1964 and with that um, going on in in America?
4: Yeah, so I started this second book right after the country had gone through the 2020 election. And so there was all this noise about election fraud and you know the big lie, and I thought it might be really cool to write uh, a book about something having to do with that, but I couldn't really figure out a contemporary angle for a story that dealt with that um as I started to research voting rights for blacks in this country um I came to realize. I think that there is a much deeper and more layered story if I were to set it um, during the summer of 1964, where um, people were fighting mightily hard to to get voting rights for Blacks in this country. And um, I'd had this character roaming around in my head, um, and I thought, oh, it might be a cool idea to explore. Um, some parallels between what was happening in 1964 and sadly, what feels eerily familiar to 2022. And so the book includes things around um, equity and voting rights um, for blacks, uh, police brutality, uh, brutality against gay and lesbian people, uh, abortion rights and woman's right to govern her own body things that we were dealing with in 1964 that sadly we're still dealing with now in 2022.
2: Was it hard to shift into a historical sort of mindset? Uh, I mean, I, I know you said you did some research, but was that, you know, a, a difficult choice to make and and were you were you ever frustrated with it I know I, since I write historical I often am and cursing myself why did I choose
1: to,
2: <laughs> why did I choose to ch- just set things in historical time period so I'm just curious um, maybe maybe that wasn't the case
4: for you but you know what I did have those moments while I was writing the book you know thinking to myself Wanda what the heck um you know there was an easier way to write a book but once I had made the decision, about the theme and the plot of what I was going to write about, you know, it had to be set in that period. So, to your point, I did tons and tons of research about the period. But one of the things that I did that I think really helped me is I immersed myself in that time period. So, if I was in the car or I was at home cleaning or whatever. I was listening to music from 1964 and I was always reading um, magazines um, from 1964 so that I could kind of get the ear of what people were talking about then and how they were talking and the vernacular. And um, so I tried to do things where I was kind of constantly in that time period. So that when I sat down to actually write, I was in the mindset of 1964. The hardest part for me writing that project was um, the historical research around people who had um, fought hard and some bled and died so that Blacks could have the right to vote in this country, and so there were, you know, pictures and firsthand accounts that you know I saw and I read, and those were the more difficult things for me to do as part of this project.
3: Did you did you take any um, real people from that time period and use them in the book?
4: Oh, I didn't use them in the book, but I talked to people who had lived during that time period, older relatives of mine. Um, in fact, I talked to, um, a lawyer by the name of Jonathan Shapiro, who, um, was a lawyer for the Mississippi Summer Project, which is the initiative to help Blacks secure the right to vote in, in Mississippi. And he was a lawyer during that time. He also happens to be the husband of Hank Philippi Ryan. And she was wonderful enough to make the introduction and he was, a ton of help because you know he gave me insight into that time period and what it was like you know actually to be there and try and fight this good fight um i did not use actual people with the exception of the references to um cheney goodman and schwerner um, which i made at the very opening of the book all the other characters are you know they come out of my wild and dark imagination. Do you
2: find it hard to, um, you know, imagine? I, I know I do this as well, but I, I just—it's very hard for me to imagine writing a character that is actually a historical character. I'm the same in the sense um, I, all my characters are invented, and then there's sort of historical figures, um, you know, get mentioned and discussed, but they don't really enter the stage. Um, you know, But there are, of course, other writers that just take on, they're like, oh, I'm going to do a fictionalized version of Lincoln or something like that. And um, I'm just curious, is that, was it just because your story didn't lead you that way or was that sort of a conscious decision to not? Yeah,
4: play? I think it just was the type of story I was writing and the way in which I wanted to cover the themes that, I didn't want to use a real person because then I would have to fictionalize, you know, their story to some extent. And, you know, I didn't want to disturb that particularly because it was historical. So I don't want to do that. Um, And then I just found it very liberating to come up with these characters because then I could create what they do and how they sound and, you know, why they have the motivations to do the things that they do, as opposed to being stuck within the confines of an actual character from history.
3: Your characters then, um, you say they come out of your, the dark parts of your mind. (laughs) Um, so your characters explain that process. Like where, where do they come from? And when you decide on a character, let's say the two sisters, their main characters, um, how do they develop and what kind of relationship do you have with them?
4: You know, it's interesting. This story is about three sisters, actually. One of the sisters, and it's not a spoiler, but one of the sisters is deceased. But she comes into the book um, as a character through a series of diary entries. Um each of those sisters, I think, has a little bit of me. Um, and I think that's kind of the case with all my characters. And And by that, I mean, you know, in the way that they might approach an issue or some event that might have taken place. Um, you know, for example, the Sister Marigold in the book is um, she's very bookish. Um didn't like to go outside and play a lot as a kid. I was that kid. You know what I mean? Um, So when I am developing characters, I, I tend to spend more time thinking rather than writing. So for this project, once I decided on what I wanted to write about, I probably just spent like a month thinking about you know, who Marigold would be and, you know, what Violet would be like before I even put pen to paper, Um, because I kind of have to know, you know, what they sound like in my head. Now, my characters, and if you read my books, I don't really describe them as having, you know, brown eyes and, you know, pointy ears or things like that. But they develop more as a vibe to me. I think I heard, maybe it was Megan Collins, I think. And she said, yeah, my characters come to me as a vibe. And I was like, that's right. That's exactly what they do. Um, And so I try to make sure that I know who they are, what they like, what they don't like, how would they interact in certain situations And then I try to build supporting characters around the main character. And then those supporting characters actually help to build the description of what that character is. And so, for example, Violet is strikingly beautiful in the book, but I don't describe how that beauty looks. But I let other people who interact with her um, describe how she makes them feel when they look at her. you know, there's a there's a white man in the book who says, you know, I, I don't even find Black women attractive. But I look at her and that Cupid bow in her mouth and, you know, I'm kind of like, wow, she's different. And so I do things like that that help me to build the characters. I don't know if that makes any sense. I now feel like I'm kind of, you know talking in circles, but it, it really does kind of evolve to me as I'm, you know, starting to write a project.
2: I like that you say you five. I think I'm going to steal that because I think that's really true. Yeah. I think that's great.
4: Yeah. Give Megan <laughs> Collins the credit for that. I heard that. her say that. And I was like, that's exactly right. That. That hits the nail on the head.
2: Yeah, I'm a, I teach I teach creative writing a lot, and I'm always trying to get students to understand that a character is more than their description or. Mm-hmm. you know and that and you're right and I love that you're sort of talking about the fact that it's not just about how they objectively look but it's how they're perceived by people around them which is part of their character right I mean I, I thought it was cool like you know, I, I'm, I'm the uh, you know the, the uh, kind of like I'm always interested in craft so I'm always going to latch on to that
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> do, do you hear your, your characters in your head
4: you know I've been asked that before and actually it's weird I don't hear the, I kind of do and kind of don't. By that I mean, I hear characters talking to each other. And so, you know, I, I hear snippets of conversation between the characters. They never talk to me. I hear some writers say, oh yeah, I started writing and then the character just took off and told me what I needed to write. And I don't get that. I just will sit down um, with a scene and I listen for the dialogue. Usually when I start a project, I usually start off with dialogue because that's what's going on in my head um, is, you know, two or three people in a scene talking and You know, each one comes into the scene and wants something different. And those are the kinds of things that I hear, but not necessarily a voice. I usually have to layer that on um, later in the revision process, whether somebody had, you know, a keen or high-pitched voice or someone had a baritone. That kind of stuff comes in later. But I just kind of sit there initially to capture the dialogue and what these characters are doing to and with one another.
3: That's good. It makes you sound a little bit more sane. You know, I get a lot of these writers that say they hear voices and they're driving around and they're talking to them and all this sort of stuff. I just, you know, you know, you're not driving down the road being talking to some voice. So
4: no. <laughs> yeah that uh, yeah, I don't I, that does not happen. yeah
2: I don't really understand that either. i
3: <laughs> No, that's good. that's good. We can unlock the door now <laughs> <laughs> So when you have this, and I'm, I'm just picturing this, so you've got the setting, the area, the events going on as it is, then you've got the sisters and their scenario going on, and all of this working together. Um, is there a, a subtext or a meaning underneath this story? Is there something that you're wanting your readers to take away from the story?
4: Oh, absolutely. I, I want them to take away from the story that for as much talk as people give to all the progress that this country has made, it's been little to none. Sure, people don't have to, black people don't have to sit in the back of a bus anymore or enter into the back of a restaurant. But there are still huge inequities between um, blacks and whites. Um, There are still uh, large gaps in terms of wages between men and women, whether women can. You know, govern their own bodies. Sadly, when I turned this book into my publisher, uh, Roe v. Wade was still in effect. And now it is not. And so my daughter, who is in her 20s, now has less rights as a woman than I had when I was in my 20s. That is sadly not how the world is supposed to work. Each generation is supposed to be better than the previous. And so I want people to to see that we are still grappling with issues around, you know, brutality against, um, you know, the the uh, LGBTQ community, which is also a theme in the book. These are things that we are still dealing with today. And I wrote a book that takes place over 60 years ago. Like, what are we doing? And, and can't we be better than this.
3: Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. Do you think a lot of the problem is that it, um, even when a law is made and placed and agreed upon and it's passed, that it takes generations to really absorb that law?
4: Perhaps. If I knew the solution Al, I'd probably hightail it somewhere to the nearest senator or you know government official to say here's how we can fix it and i don't know that because you know people are still people and they have free will and you think that things that for example you you gave a perfect example that um i demonstrate in the book uh the book takes place in or a portion of the book takes place in Mississippi. And I actually wanted Mississippi to stand out as a character in the book because it was one of those states that was the staunchest in trying to maintain uh, segregation and Jim Crow laws. And so, even after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which opened public facilities to people regardless of race and color, Mississippi business leaders had determined that they were going to still maintain segregation. And so they refused to um, abide by the law. So the Civil Rights Act was passed in July 1964, and there is this small wedge of time um, during that summer after the passage where Mississippians still would not follow the law. And so that's why it became necessary for um, organizations like SCLC and NAACP to send in testers that would go in and try and check into hotels or enter movie theaters, sit at lunch counters in order to make sure that people were abiding by the law. And Mississippians were not doing that. They said that they were going down in flames and some Mississippi business leaders would shutter their businesses rather than serve blacks. So, again, I wish I could tell you what the solution is to that. But here we sit now in 2022 where we have political leaders in this country who decide that they won't follow the law, that the truth is not the truth, and a lie is not a lie. Sad.
3: Yeah. Yeah yeah it well i i will say that yeah you know, that what's going on in America is definitely a little bit um a little bit off the uh normal um the normal issue of of what the, and how to deal with problems. Um, oh, Al, It's bonkers
4: out there. Yeah, it's bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> let's just be honest.
3: Well, it I'm, I'm trying to be polite here, but there's a...
4: <laughs> oh, sorry, Yeah, sorry. Uh, okay, yeah,
3: you're right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, no, no. I mean, is that, it is. It's it's kind of nutty, uh, mm-hmm. but the thing is, y- you have to wonder why. There, there's there's more than just. Mm-hmm. than than what we see on the surface here. There's something else going on.
4: There's something else definitely at play. You know, where I just say it, I think that, you know, race still continues to be a really big issue in this country Um, and that people will sometimes work against their own self-interest in order to feel they are superior or they are better than and that's unfortunate. I try and point out in the book that a lot of this still comes back down to voting, that who you go to the polls to elect, to govern you, to govern this country, is still impacting us. Right now, we have a Supreme Court majority that was created by a man who was elected president and, and it, it it happened because there were all sorts of voter suppression shenanigans going on. Um, there was this kind of, you know, combustible, you know, convergence of, you know, people and, and racial polarization and all of this has created, um, this kind of like I said, this kind of bonkers world that we live in now. And um, I don't think that it's gonna be easily rectified. I like to think that, you know, the runoff election between Herschel Walker and Reverend Warnock is maybe the the riding of the ship because, you know, it, it, it would be insane at this point to start electing officials that have No moral character or intellectual capacity to handle governing this country.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. And, uh, but even, even as it stands, having a Supreme Court with people don't leave until they die or retire, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, that's a long time to go. And, Mm -hmm. and you see the problem, the problem you get, um, from what I study is when, when there's a way of life that runs for years. Laws that say now, okay, Roe v. Wade's gone, and let's say abortions are illegal, and at, from now until the time that it does change back, which could be years and years, and that whole that mm-hmm. whole time period, you've got generations, and you've got people that come up and they learn this is as, as what is real. And, you know, they learn the law as, as it's to be right to them. So they think this is right. So then when you try to change the law, then they're upset. Um, I, I think to explain it easier was like even when the gay rights movements in the 60s until the riots, until it became legal, um, the 20 years before that, the police were going around raiding and assaulting and robbing gay men just at will for the fun of it. And they considered them to be um, criminals and bad people and evil and all sorts of stuff, some mentally ill. And just because they changed the law in 1967, those people that had been treating gay people that way for the previous 20 years didn't change. So I think that's the problem with with the time thing. You you get stuck with this Supreme Court. It it, it places a lot of standards in society that you have to live with.
4: I, I think some of that is true to an extent, but when you look at when you look at racial discrimination in this country, well, we said in nineteen sixty four that it was illegal to discriminate against people in terms of, you know, public access or employment or any of these other things. That didn't stop it. It still continues to this day. And we're talking almost 60 years. So, I, you know, again, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I just wish I knew the answer. I, I, I'm not quite sure what the answer is. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, I mean, you know, one thing that I've noticed teaching young people, um, You know, I teach undergraduates, and uh, thankfully, they're very politically activated uh, these days. But I don't think my generation, I don't think millennials were particularly politically activated. And it feels like, you know, the problem is that to rectify some of these, you know, racism that has been placed, or homophobia, misogyny, et cetera, et cetera, that's been placed for so many years, I mean, centuries, um, is that we're going to have to sustain that activism across generations? And so, if you you start thinking everything's okay, or like we're mm-hmm. like Obama as president, you know, and you know yeah. that's, that's everything's solved, racism's solved, and you know, of course, we you know we know that's not true, but
3: mm-hmm.
2: outward illusion, the sort of cultural kind of connection to it, so you know, I just, I really hope that we can continue to have young people engaged and there's not, um, you know, a, another lull, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's like, it has to be sustained.
4: Exactly. I, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, Roe v. Wade was overturned because I think to a certain extent, people became complacent and they were like, Yeah, this has always been law, and it won't change. And all it took was one term by a president to wipe all of that away through um, Supreme Court appointments. And so, you know, we got complacent and thought, yeah, this will never change. This is law. And to your point, I agree, John. That you know, we just have to stay in the game.
3: Now, this this book is done, and when you do books like this, do you ever do you ever plan sequels? Do you ever plan to take some of your characters and 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 have them come back again in a different different book?
4: Um, I don't initially start out that way. There is a bit of an Easter egg in anywhere you run from. Um, all her little secrets. And I'll just let readers go out and discover that for themselves in regards to characters. But I, I don't like way back when I, you know, had finally finished all her little secrets. You know, I love those characters so much. And, you know, I had my protagonist, you know, I thought, oh, yeah, I could do, you know, another two books just with her. And, you know, what happens after this? But, you know, Things evolve and things change. And like I said, by the time I finished that book, I looked up and the world was just going crazy. And I thought, oh, I have to write about this because, again, I'm frustrated and, and I write when I'm frustrated. So, um, so that's why I got a different project um, and, and came to write Anywhere You Run. So I don't have any plans to write a sequel to Anywhere You Run. Um, I'm working on a third book that's, you know, again, I've gone back to contemporary, totally different characters. So it just kind of depends on my mood.
0: Mm.
3: Yeah. It's kind of a, how much of yourself is in this character, any of these characters and, and, and who would you say you're the most of in a character? Mm, Gosh, you know,
4: like I alluded to earlier, the the three sisters in um, anywhere you run, I think there's a little bit of each of them in me. Um,
0: Marigold
4: is very bookish, and I was very bookish and one of those kind of studious students, um, the uh, oldest sister rose, who is who is deceased, but dreams of being a writer, you know there's a little bit of that in me. And then Violet, who is the youngest sister, um, you know, she's feisty and, you know, she's the youngest out of the family and I'm the youngest of seven kids. And so I think I've put a little bit of myself in each of the characters and the protagonists that I write about um, just because sometimes there are experiences in my life that I like to exploit um, through uh, the narrative of my book. And, And so putting a little piece of me in it, you know, but certainly by no means are these books, you know, autobiographical or anything like that. You know, when I wrote all her little secrets, I used to get asked all the time, so you know, who did you work with that was like Jonathan in the book? You know, it's like, ah, no, you know, like, did you ever walk in on a dead body? No. (laughs) Did you ever walk away and leave a dead body without calling the authorities? No.
3: (laughs) Tell the truth. (laughs) How hard is it to get into the minds of the evil, the bad character, the, 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 the do bad person that want the killer or the uh, just awful person that you get into, or someone that, someone that, you know, when you're talking about racism, someone that's, you know, that just doesn't like black people or or, or gays or whatever it is, they've just got this hate. How do you get into that mind and write it and make it come alive? And then how does that affect you?
4: Mm. Um, Well, certainly with the second book, um, because it was set in 1964 and people felt a lot freer saying and doing really, really, really horrible things. That was tough. And so sometimes after I wrote a particularly difficult scene, I would kind of let it rest and, you know, go off and watch Cartoon Network or something Um, just to kind of give my mind a little breather. But I actually enjoy writing the darker characters um, because it gives me an opportunity to explore the human psyche and, and what is it that motivates people to do such awful things that would amass trauma and 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 pain on other people it, it gives me the opportunity to explore you know human dynamics that would you know wind up causing somebody so much pain um so from a craft standpoint i enjoy writing those characters and exploring the motivations for them doing the things that they do but like I said, with anywhere you run, because, um, you know, trigger warning for, you know, your listeners, there's terminology in there that is very Jim Crow South, 1964. And so sometimes after you're writing some of those scenes with some of that terminology and some of the, you know, bad things that they do, it, I'd have to step back for a minute. I
3: would say that would be tough to work with. It you know, in a book and, and getting into that emotion, you know. Um, thank God I just write children's books.
4: <laughs> you know, people tell me, you know, oh, my gosh, the ending of your book. And I'm like, yeah, I know. One of these days I'm going to write, like, this really happy rom-com or something. I just, right now, I'm not there. I keep, you know, writing these these books that. Explore a really dark side. But I think that, again, that's because I try to write about issues that are important to me or issues that move me. And interestingly enough, they're issues that move other people. They're issues that are important
3: to other people, too. Well, and dealing with such emotion and such important issues, when you sit down to write, um, what's Wanda's process? Like, does Wanda have to Um, be alone in a room no noise everyone's away from home and can you set the times you know 10 to 2 today 10 to 3 tomorrow and sit down and then turn it on and write or do you have to put yourself or be in a certain mood or emotions going on in order for you to get this kind of work done
4: well for me you know writing is You know, I don't want to describe it as a job because I love this more than any job I've ever had. But writing is a business. And so I come to this business every day prepared to do business. So that means that I have to be in a chair and ready to work. I don't sit and wait for the muse to hit me. I have to and I'm a bit of I'm a bit of a dinosaur and a creature of habit. I write um, in silence if I'm writing new material. I have to be in silence. I can't listen to music. I can't write in, you know, coffee shops. I write all of uh, my new material, longhand, yellow legal pad, blue gel, pilot gel ink pens. It's like ritual. Once I get a substantial amount of the book done in longhand, then I transfer that into the computer. And that's where I can listen to, you know, light classical or light jazz, nothing that's too toe tapping because then I'll start dancing and singing along. Um, And then I put that into the computer and print that out. And that gives me my first draft. And then I do all my revisions um, by longhand. Uh, red gel ink pen this time, <laughs> um, and <laughs> yeah, I I know it's a creature of habit, um, but but that's kind of how I do it. So now I'm working on my third book, and so I am in the process of writing new material, which means um, with a yellow notepad and a blue gel ink pen, writing every day, long hand at the desk in silence.
3: Well, what happens to Wanda then when things are going wrong? And I don't mean necessarily in the, in the writing world, but, you know, y- your, your neighbors are, you know, outside protesting, wearing masks, and you've got, um, you know, Herschel Walker asking you to vote for him. And, and you got all this, you know, <laughs> let's all the stress that goes on, you know, it's been pretty tense in a lot of times. In the last few years, so when all this is happening, um, do you still go on? You can do it; it doesn't stop you.
4: No, dogs barking outside. My neighbors have two dogs, and you know they're like white noise to me now because they bark all the time. Um, but but no, I mean I.
3: <laughs> Republicans are like white noise. <laughs>
4: Herschel Walker was like white noise, right? Um, no, I, I go into my study. I, I write from you know, a room in my home and I go in there and I close the door. and it's pretty quiet in there. and I'm able to kind of shut things out, like I said, as long as you know there isn't music or someone's talking to me or someone's talking behind me and I'm trying to ease you up on a conversation then I Mm. can pretty much focus and and block that out. Now, I Mm. had a pretty heavy promo schedule for the second book. And so then I found myself having to, you know, kind of write whenever I could find the time. And so those get to be kind of gnarly. Um And so if I, you know, didn't get an opportunity to write during the day, then I was trying to do it at night. But my brain is most equipped to write early in the mornings um, because I'm just kind of fried after by dinner time. Um, But yeah, I just, I just tend to, to focus.
3: um, So you, so you don't really hold on to it. So, uh, you know, you're, you hear a news, news story, you know, uh, old Putin falls down.
4: I don't have the found... TV on, so I, I won't oh, have the TV but, on, no.
3: No, but before you go into the writing, like the night before Putin falls down the stairs and poops himself, <laughs> and then, and then, then you, you, the next morning you're up early writing and you're not. You're not holding on to that? Like, you don't hold on to any of it? No,
4: not unless one of my loved ones is in the news. I'm going to let Putin, you know, handle his business, and I just go about the business <laughs> of writing.
3: Well, I'm trying to throw you there, but hey. <laughs> so now, um, are you um, really inter- interacting with readers and fans and people like that, or uh, do you do social media? Do you do website? What What's your... What's your way of, of connecting with your readers?
4: Um, so, yeah. So, people should feel free to send me a note if you like my books through my website. Um, there's a contact page. It's Um, But I'm on all the social media platforms, Twitter. Um, I'm WandaMo14. Um, Instagram, I'm WandaMoWrites. And Facebook, I'm Wanda Writer. Um, i I've gotten on Hive, but I just have been too busy to get on there and do anything of any substance. But I do like to interact with with readers and booksellers and librarians. And so I always encourage people to reach out to me now. You know, I've got notes that, you know, some aren't so nice and I just let that energy go. But I love interacting with readers. So,
3: yeah, reach out. Mm. Oh, you don't just like hunting them down and, and get them killed? Or? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh boy. There's so much fun in that. Jesus. I'm busy all the time. Well, of course, we'll put your information up and, and uh your books from the website. People can find you with one click. You know, any you know, gotta help her out. Wanda needs buy books. That's right. Buy books. Buy books. Yeah. Buy books. Buy a book, make someone happy. She needs Christmas money. Okay? <laughs> so, the latest book, Anywhere You Run a Novel. And Wanda M. Morris is the writer, and it's been her guest. So, well, we appreciate you being by here. Thank you.
4: Thank you so much for having me, Al and John. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests,